Good morning, brothers, sisters, and friends. It's so good to see you all. I hope that you all are, are doing well. If you have your, your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Exodus, all the way to the front of the Bible, right after Genesis, the book of Exodus. And we're going to be in Exodus chapter 14 this morning, as you all may already know. Last Sunday, as we came back to to Exodus after some time off, after our Summer in the Psalm series and our series on deacons, we, we took that week just to kind of take a 30,000-foot uh, flyover Exodus chapters 1 through 13, which we've already covered together, and you can go back and listen to that onto the, on the website, or even go, if you're eager enough, you can even listen to the 29 sermons that are that came previously to, to that from the book of Exodus. But as we did that, and as we did so, I want to just kind of keep one thing on our forefront so that we remember from that 30,000-foot flyover, and that as we continue Exodus, that we need to remember that the, the main character, not only in all of the Bible, but also in the book of Exodus, is God. It is the Lord God who has revealed himself to Moses, Yahweh, the I am who I am. He is the main character and actor in the story of Exodus and throughout all of human history to save a people for his glory. And Exodus is an example of that. And the work of the church from Acts, the book of Acts, and even now, the same thing. God is saving a people for his glory. And we call that the church. The whole Exodus story, the whole point of Israel and the church is that we know that God has created us as a people and that he is with us as he is with. We see the people in Exodus that he is with them and has saved us for his glory. And now as we get back down to Chapter 14, we are going to land the plane that we've been flying at 30,000 feet, and we're going to bring it down to the level where Israel is, where we get to hear the beginning, at least, of one of the great epic stories in all the Bible. The great epic story of the power of God as he, um, as he splits the Red Sea, and so that Israel crosses over the Red Sea on dry land. So let's look to Exodus chapter 14, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1 together. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hitharoth, between Migdal and the sea. In front of you, Baal Zephon, and shall encamp in facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, 
the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done? Now, we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel was going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them. All of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi Hitheroth in front of Baal Zephon. Then Pharaoh, or excuse me, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, It is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness. What have you done to bring us out of Egypt? Is not this what you said to us in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, when he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only to be silent. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired in an errant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. We will get to the second half of chapter 14 next week, so please come back and, and be a part of that. Or you can, well, not or, but please also read ahead so you know the rest of the, of the story. But where we stop when we said we land the plane down onto the ground and we see the the human perspective of things the perspective of Israel if we stopped right there and just considered the perspective of Israel and what they are seeing in front of them and what lies behind them things circumstances life does not look good at all if you didn't catch it they are backed to the sea they have been backed all the way to the edge of the sea, and all that is in front of them is the whole army of Egypt that is ready to destroy them. You know, just a chapter ago, as they were leaving Egypt hastily, they were leaving in excitement, and they were leaving with joy. They were leaving, like I said, hastily as conquerors and taking with them the the, the riches of Egypt, they just saw the great wonders and marvels and the, the power of God's hand upon the nation of, of, of Egypt as he judged them. They, they experienced the being set free from bondage. They experienced the, the mercy of God to pass over them through an atoning sacrifice. They leave Egypt confidently headed 
presumably to the promised land. But now, just a few days later, look how things have turned around. All that seemed to be going well, all that seemed to be be going so good for them is now unraveling right before their eyes. And they ask questions. They cry out to God and they question Moses. And maybe that's the more spiritual thing. We'll pray, but then Moses will be in fear and we'll question him and his leadership. And to them is God's plan unraveling. Has, has God not really thought out all, uh, thought this all the way through and how he's going to get his people out safely? You ever been a part of a plan with somebody and you quickly realize that they haven't thought this thing all the way through? And there you are, you've hitched yourself to their wagon and you're about to go over the cliff? Here they are. And certainly there is... Not much a comparison, at least in the circumstances of our lives, for the most part, of the the seriousness of the danger that all of Israel was facing at this moment in Exodus 14. But yet I am sure that some of us have been in a place where it seems as if we were exactly where the Lord wanted us. The Lord had led us. He is shown us he has provided in so many ways he has brought us out in the sense to the desert and we went out conquering we went out faithfully we went out excited and joyful but soon after that we have faced setback after setback disappointment after disappointment temptation after temptation hardship after hardship You would think it would be easy when you're following the Lord. Trust Christ and everything will get better. That doesn't work. We still live in a fallen world. We still have a fallen, weak flesh. And in those moments when our backs are against the wall, we want to ask the question. That question comes, why? And why should I stay on this path? If it leads me into this... Uh, hello. Things were a little bit better. We began questioning God. We began questioning God's plan. We began questioning God's intent. We began questioning even God's love. And given the right circumstances, brothers and sisters, I do not think that there is not one of us who would have such doubts, who wouldn't have a growing cynicism, or bitterness when we are backed against the proverbial wall. When Christina and I moved to Cincinnati after I graduated from college, she was still in college and she enrolled at the University of Cincinnati to finish out her degree as well as taking some online classes with our school that we were at in Florida. We moved to Cincinnati to become missionaries on the campus of the University of Cincinnati. And there we also would serve with a local church. So here we are, we're 20, what, 3, 23, 22 years old. We're in the center of God's will. Missionaries, I mean, how how much further do you have to be out of God's will? You're going. You hear you're in God's will. It's what we wanted. 
There could be no better place, no safer place it would seem. And soon after we moved there, we began to experience difficulty. Thankfully, not in our marriage. That was wonderful. But soon after we moved there, we had one of our cars break down. And you know, it broke down in one of those catastrophic major ways. The kind of way that costs thousands of dollars to repair that you do not have because you are poor. We just graduated from college. I'm only making about $11,000 a year. And she's in college. We're poor. It's kind of poor that if you can afford a Coke, you share it. The mechanic we hired did a terrible job. Gave us back our car, said it's broken, it's never going to be working again. Ran on five or six cylinders. Then he quickly closed up his shop and left town. We ended up getting the car fixed, but it cost another $1,500 that we did not have. But we did get the car fixed because of a wonderful brother in our church. And praise God, spring came around and we could work on a car outside. In the meantime, our other vehicle got hit in the parking lot of the, of the college that we were ministering at. And then as, as time continued to go, we began to experience uh, Christina's family was experiencing some pretty major problems that was going on. Nothing seemed to be going right, at least personally for us. Ministry-wise was good. There was some difficulty there and certainly some loneliness as well. But seeing everything else seemed to be going right. But for those big major things, the things that you think that uh, you shouldn't have to necessarily deal with, our backs were becoming pushed against the wall. Things were to my plan, at least, were definitely not going according to plan. And certainly nothing, nothing to be compared to a life and death situation. But we believe, once again, we are on this path that the Lord has led us in. Financially, emotionally, we were backed into a wall. And I know at some point I thought to myself, wouldn't it be easier just to pack up and go home? I could just be a regular dude and get a job, make money for my family, buy a house, and start life. Why, God? And I say all that for you. Please do not feel, for, feel sorry for us because the Lord was working into it. But I say all that to you for this because some of you know exactly what, I've, what it feels like. Some of you might already be feeling being backed into that wall one way or another, or you might be being backed into the wall in the future. The flesh is weak. The human heart has a tendency to forget. We have such short memories when we suffer hardship and when we suffer difficulty. We respond, as Israel did, we respond in fear. Which is, by the way, that fear always comes out, brothers and sisters, listen to me, it either comes out in faith or it comes out in sin. And when it comes out in sin, it comes out in pride. It comes out in anger. It comes out in bitterness. It comes out in blame shifting. You blame one another. Excuses. And I know this passage is about Israel and their doubt, but brothers and sisters, it serves as a great lesson for us this morning. Not only teaching us something about ourselves, but it teaches us about our faithful 
Father. And, and in fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 10 about these particular things in, in Exodus. He says, these things took place as an example for us so that we may not desire evil as they did. These things are examples for us to look at and rightly interpreted. We can understand how not to be evil or respond in fear as they did. So we have some lessons to learn here. Again, so that we do not desire evil, so that our responses wouldn't be evil and sin and fear and down and running back into slavery. And so we have much to learn here. And the reason why, again, because we have much to learn and what we can see in them and ourselves. And so the first thing, from verses 1 through 9, I want us to get a glimpse of the big picture of what's happening here. In the big picture, as I started off by telling you that it seems like in the perspective of Israel, right there on the ground, is a perspective of doubt and a perspective of fear. But the big picture of verses 1 through 9 is not doubt and fear or even Egypt and all of their strength and all of their chariots, but the big picture of verses 1 through 9, which also is the big picture of the whole Bible, and that is the absolutely unequivocating sovereignty of God. So even though it would seem as if these nine verses are developing against Israel, right, and showing their fear and the enemies coming against them, it's telling us the exact opposite. In chapter 13, the Lord had already led his people, told Moses, Moses, go this way, not that way. Don't go toward the Philistines. You're not ready for war. Lest you be in bad, you're in bad shape, don't go that way, but go this way. God is leading his people. Chapter 14, he begins to lead his people and sovereignly lead his people as we see. The Lord tells Moses to turn back the way that they came and go and camp outside of Egypt. And you see those three places. That kind of helps us orient sort of where they are going to be. And where they are oriented is they are going to be encamping right on the shore of the Red Sea. Talking about a great place to have camp. Man, Lakeview, our sea view, the birds, the fishing, plenty to eat, sunshine, sunset. Ah, oh, what a great place God's leading us to the Red Sea. However, from a strategic standpoint, trying to keep from, to keep this amount of people safe, this is a terrible idea. To back yourself up against into a corner, literally, or back yourself up into the sea, literally, where are you to escape? The desert, which was facing Egypt, was directly in front of them on one side, and the other side is the sea. And so, strategically, there is nowhere for them to go. A good, a good leader, a good military commander always has a good plan of retreat of exfil to get out and then chapter 14 the lord tells moses to go and encamp in this particular place why verse 3 for pharaoh will say to the people of israel they are wandering in the land the wilderness has shut them in 
So God is putting them in this very bad strategic place for them to camp, not just for the views, but for a particular reason. And here what he says here is he wants, he wants the Egyptians to know where they are camping. He wants the Egyptians to think that they have no clue what they're doing. They, all they know is Egypt. They want to sort of poke and prod and sense the Egyptians to come follow them. Now, in a humanly speaking, we would think this is not a good idea. We should be avoiding contact at all costs. But this, is, this unusual strategy is the usual strategy of God. He does not do the things that we expect him to do or even sometimes want him to do. For example... Hey, Abraham, I know your wife and you and your wife are in your 90s, but you're going to have a son. That's unusual. Hey, Gideon, how many men do you need to take out the whole Midian army, which is somewhere around 300,000 men? 30,000 enough? How about 10,000? I tell you what. Dwindle it down to 300. The unusual but usual strategy of God. This is how the Lord works. He uses the most unlikely strategies and plans and means, and he puts his people in the most unlikely of places at times. And sometimes, as we see here, even in the worst situation possible. So why would God do that? Is God evil? Did he deliver them out of Egypt just to bring them there to die? Are the Egyptians right in their questioning? Is God cruel? Is God cruel? If he didn't deliver them, then yes, he is cruel. But he has delivered them. And what we see here is God has delivered them and brought him into these most unlikely, least strategic place ever to show them that he is the Lord again. That he alone is sovereign. And what his people needed to hear and to see and to experience more than their safety, than their comfort, than their own desires and what they think is right, they needed to experience the sovereignty of Yahweh and the power of God. So God is setting this trap for the Egyptians. Again, to think as if the Israelites have no idea what they are doing. The Israelites don't know what they're doing. But God does. The Lord does. And so according to verse 4, the Lord's plan is to, once again, we see him harden the heart of Pharaoh. To again, blind him in his own arrogance of the situation. To take the bait and to go out and take care of those pesky Israelites once and for all. Again, we ask, why does God do this? Verse 4, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. 
and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And we've, we've dealt with this idea of not only the glory of God, but the hardening of Pharaoh's heart extensively throughout, throughout uh, the narrative of Exodus. So I'm not going to dive too deep into this theologically, but God is, listen, is glorified even in the judgment of the wicked. He is sovereign over the hearts of the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh for his own destruction and for God's glory. God is glorified. I will show them my glory. I will harden his heart. I will show my glory by destroying them that they may know and that I am the Lord. And do you hear that? He is God. He is the Lord. And he judges accordingly. The New Testament speaks of this situation in the book of Romans as it teaches us the sovereignty of God over the hearts of men. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardened whomever he wills. And brothers and sisters, as he says here in Exodus, he does all of this for his glory. And so now in verses 5 through 9, the Egyptians, by the way, I mean, they, they do exactly what God said he, they were going to do. Exactly. Pharaoh changes his mind again. whoop de doo What's new? As we've seen him do several times, right? And he regrets letting Israel go. All the servants of his, they regret. Why did we let them go again? They should be serving us, right? They started having to clean up after themselves and start to water their own trees, what was left of them, and everything else, right? And they were, why aren't we doing this again? Who did this? And so he, Pharaoh, his heart is hardened, and he sets his army, his chariots, at that time the greatest weapon of war, against the Israelites to forcibly either bring them back or probably to kill them. And now one might think that after all that Egypt has gone through, after all of the, the plagues, even witnessing the, the death of all of their firstborns, after experiencing such divine judgment, have they lost their minds? Yes! They totally have lost their minds in a sense. You would think that they would relent at this point. That they would cut their losses in a sense. That they would save some faith and kind of let them go and let's just try to move on and fix what we can. But oh no. As the Lord says in verse 8, as he has already told Moses, the Lord hardened the heart of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to do what? To bring glory to himself. So do you see the big picture? The big picture here and what these verses are telling us through 1 through 9 is not necessarily about the plight that is coming over Israel. It's certainly there, but the overarching big picture is the sovereignty of God and that every bit of our lives is under his sovereign hand. The Lord is at work in, in, in so many ways in Israel 
at this point in time. And they have no clue, do they? They have no clue. The Lord was doing greater and more wonderful things before them and through them to make His glory known. Brothers and sisters, the the sovereignty of God is not an excuse for our foolishness or our sin. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, may it never be. But we must even understand that as our God is sovereign in everything, that He has ordered all of our ways, that whatever may come our way. Did you hear that? Whatever. Even leading us to our backs against the proverbial wall, that He is going to use it for His glory. And as we say so often around here, for His glory and for our joy. for our good. The story is the picture of God's sovereignty over his people to deliver him, to save them by his mighty hand and to judge Egypt and to destroy them and so that all the world may know the glory of God. So consider the cross. To the world, to Satan, it must have seemed that God had no idea what he was doing. That he had no idea what he was doing. Why would he waste? Why would he waste such a brilliant teacher to only have three years to teach and preach? Why would God allow his son to be handed over to sinful men who stripped him, who beat him, and then crucified him? Why would God allow the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to experience such humiliation, such pain, such torture, such sin all around him, and then even experience death itself? This plan, this strategy would seem to give all the power to the evil one. That this would give all the power and advantage to sin and evil. Because here is the seed of the woman being crushed. Why? It would seem as if at the cross, God's plan had failed. Surely he would not allow this to happen to God's son. But as we know the story, this is by far the worst miscalculation in the history of the world because what was meant for evil, what was meant for death, what was meant for destruction and defeat, Jesus Christ brought victory. He brought life. He brought an atonement of sin. He crushed death through his resurrection. And what else did he do? Colossians 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He did all of this. Why? For his own glory. And that is why and how we are saved. It is because of God's plan of sending his son to be killed 
and to die on the cross. And yet it was the plan of victory. It was a plan of deliverance. It was a plan of to show his glory. And so what is the big picture of the cross that Jesus knew in the garden? When he prayed, remove this cup from me. He said, but not my will, but your will be done. What's the big picture? The big picture is the glory of God that even in our suffering, that even in our difficulty, that even in temptation or just the difficulties of everyday life, when we are backed up against the wall, we should not get lost in the trees, but always have the perspective of a sovereign, loving God that has not lost control and that he is always at work even if you cannot see them and even if you do not understand them. We may not understand and listen, brothers and sisters, you are not meant to. But he has told you that he does all things for his glory and that he is sovereign. So trust and have faith. Secondly, God is sovereign, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that our backs will not be still backed up against the wall. The big picture is great, but that doesn't mean that our backs are still not going to get back, backed against the wall. This is the reality, in a sense, of living in a fallen world with a fallen nature. The flesh is weak. In verses 10 through 12, we, this shows us the, the heartbreaking reality of the short-sightedness of the hearts of men. In the hearts of man. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. Remember, so they're right in front of them. Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They feared greatly. That pretty much sums up the whole situation, right? This is, this is not good. And the people cried out to the Lord. Verse 11. And they said to Moses... Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out to Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So again, we are right in the ground. I mean, you, you're literally looking at them, you're looking back, and you're hearing the words of what they say all around us. We get, we get exactly what they are feeling and what they are saying as they are facing this most dangerous moment of this devastating army that is coming against them with this myriad of chariots. Israel, though a huge host of, of people, they're not an army. They're, they're former slaves. They're, they are not trained. They probably have very few weapons among them. Their backs are against are against the sea. They do not have chariots. And we hear that, in a sense, that they, they lost all their confidence here, doesn't it? I mean, it's just, it's just gone. They lost all their confidence in, the, in Moses and all their confidence also in the Lord. And they, they, are, they are one step away from all-out panic where they just go running and screaming in the various directions. And they, they speak sort of sarcastically, don't they, in their questions. And they, they reference these graves in, in Egypt that, 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 that could be filled with them if they would have just stayed there. And I, 
And of course, we, we should know that um, Egypt is filled with graves. The pyramids, hello, hey. The sarcophagus is everywhere. They're speaking sarcastically. There, there was already enough graves there for us. We could have just stayed there. But here's the big one that they say. They say that it would have been better to stay in slavery than to die here in the wilderness. No doubt, again, things on the ground, where we see, the perspective that we hear, the emotion that we hear, we hear things are bad. They look bad. And all that they can comprehend is all that they can see, that they are in this very desperate situation. They were in this trap. They were in this trap that was ready to be sprung against them. And they totally gave in to their fear. And they say that they would rather go back into slavery than to die in the wilderness. But here's the thing. And just the question I think that can be asked and should be asked. As Pharaoh had all the evidence of a sovereign God that was going to crush them if they did not relent, did not Israel have all the same evidence of a loving God and a sovereign God and a delivering God? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you see that in their fear that they totally forgot about God's grace. And they forgot about God's glory, and all they could see is their enemies. But you see why? Why did God lead them to that spot again? Why did God lead them to that spot? Well, to them, they, they asked these questions. But God was, in a sense, answering these questions. These questions about graves and dying in the desert and the, I told you so, we were going to die out here, this wasn't going to be good. God led them, as we already talked about, God led them out in the desert, in the wilderness, for his glory. Not for their comfort, not for their ease, not for their pleasure, not for a vacation by the sea. He brought them out for his glory. And as we have already said, he has saved us for his glory. And we are also so tempted, just like Israel to turn back to slavery and sin rather than salvation and living a holy life. This, this temptation to turn back in slavery is not something that's just unique to Israel. Paul warns of it in Romans 8. You have been saved by the spirit, not a spirit of slavery, but it's the spirit of adoption. Why? Because in our sin, we want to turn back to slavery. And in our salvation, God has delivered us all the way out from our sins. And so then maybe the reason why we go through such difficulty and why it seems our backs are going against the wall is maybe because the Lord is trying to teach us that very lesson that you have been delivered. You have been set free. That it's all about faith and trust. That it's about uprooting any love or desire that you ever had for Egypt. You see, often our problem is in our sanctification as Christians, 
is that it seems sometimes we only come out partway, do we? we? We take a couple steps forward, but we're so ready to look back. Objectively, we, we know objectively that we are free from condemnation in Christ. We understand objectively that positionally we are, we are free, that we have freedom and we are no longer condemned. We know Romans... A1, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that. We know we have been delivered out of Egypt. But subjectively, when we struggle, when, when, when we're backs are against the wall, oftentimes we turn back and we think, maybe Egypt was better. Maybe slavery was better because at least I'm not dying here. We struggle with our sanctification. We struggle with walking in holiness. We struggle facing temptation and dealing with difficulty and loss, just like Israel. We know that God is going to take his people into the promised land. We know that he is going to take us into the promised land, and eventually we will be saved from the presence of sin, and we will be glorified. We know that we are not slaves, but as I said earlier from Romans chapter 8, we have a tendency to live like slaves. We decide to follow Christ, but soon after we start having these problems, whatever that may be, we get scared and we want to turn right back, or we do turn right back to our old ways, to thinking that the only way to coping with these particular difficulties is through my anger, or through my addictions, or depressions, or distractions, or, or, or whatever they mean, or, or, even, or even lust. No matter how much we, we, we used to hate those sins, and even as much as we still hate those things, we still find some kind of security in them, as they did. They found a security and safety, listen to me, in slavery. And that's all sin is. It's slavery. It doesn't, you don't, uh, you don't get it to work for you, you work for it. It doesn't pay you, you pay it. And yet we want to turn to these things. And the reason is, is because we are so short-minded. Sometimes we just do not have the eyes to see. Sometimes we are just blinded. And, and sometimes it sees what, what, is, what is in front of us is just worse. And more difficult. We must recognize these difficulties and these temptations when they come and understand that in this life, brothers and sisters and friends, that our backs will be against the wall. And we must help one another in them. That's one of the great benefits of being the body of Christ. We get to say, hey, I'm with you. Don't turn back to slavery. Let's go together. And so this Exodus story is for us to see such wonderful things about the gospel. Even, even greater than Israel, has, has the Lord not shown us his glory through the deliverance that comes through his Son? Has he not shown us that deliverance and freedom in Christ is greater?
so that when our backs are against the wall, when the flesh is weak, when slavery in our morbid minds looks better than freedom, that we can behold the cross and the resurrection of Christ because that, my friends, is the greatest evidence of the love of God and the sovereignty of God and the care of God than anything else. And lastly, that's the picture, the big picture of the gospel, of the pic, big picture of the story we see here is the God, that our God is sovereign. Praise God that gives us such a great and firm foundation for all of life. But we also know that the flesh is weak, and when we're backed up against the wall with temptation and fear, we, we want to turn back to that sin and to slavery as if that is the better idea. But in those times, we must hear the exhortation from God's Word and to our souls that we should walk by faith and not by sight and to make a stand. And so like a good leader, Moses speaks to the people as they are in complete, utter fear on that step of chaos and panic. And he says this, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. 14, listen to verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Memorize that verse today. I think the underlying principle here for us in this first is to draw out from these verses is that again, salvation and deliverance is not what you do, but it is what God has done. It is what God has done in Christ. It is what God then has done in, in us. See the salvation of the Lord. Romans 4, see the salvation of the Lord. He will work. The, the Lord is fighting for you. They are not saving themselves. We cannot stay from ourselves. Romans 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a due. But to the one who does not work, but believes, faith, believes in him, Christ, him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted to him as righteousness. How are we given righteousness then? It is given to us by God who gives us faith. And that faith is counted to us as, on, as, as righteousness because he is the one who justifies, makes righteous, makes right before God the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? We were the ungodly if you are in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, you are still part of that, of that, that classification of being ungodly. And so the call this morning, even from lonely Romans verse 4 and 4, just a small point here, is to trust in Christ. To put your faith in Him. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. Christ has done it all. And isn't that wonderful? Don't come striving. Don't come exhausted. Come as you are and trust in Christ and the work of the cross. And that's it. Confess your sins and believe. And what does it say? It's he who justifies the ungodly and that faith will be counted to righteousness and by his grace you will be regenerated and transformed and, and made anew. Because it is 
Yahweh, the Lord, as we see in Exodus 14 and throughout all the Bible, that it is God who saves. And so we trust in the act of faith when, when we trust in Him. And so when we're on this side of the, of the sea, we're on this side of the, the Red Sea, what are, what are we being told to do? Have faith. Trust. Moses gives, is giving a tip, right, as, as well, to the big things that are about to happen. He tells us, hey, you're not going to have to deal with those Egyptians anymore. God is going to do something mighty. He is going to fight for you. And all you have to do is just stand there and be quiet. The Lord is not done, brothers and sisters. He is always on the move. And so Moses gives these three practical applications. This will be toward our, the end of our message this morning. Three, three practical applications here. He says, do not be afraid. Sin pulls us down into the waters of death, doesn't it? And this world can overwhelm us, but should we give in to fear? And the answer to that question is no. So do we pretend that sin is no big deal? No. Do we try to save ourselves or pretend that we do not deserve judgment? No. We preach the truth, and that truth overwhelms fear. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is greater than he who is in thee. Uh, I got that messed up. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you are in Christ, then listen, you've already been pulled down into death. If you are in Christ, you have already been pulled down into death because you have already died. You have died to self. Christ has died and we have died with him. And if Christ has been raised, then so have you have been raised. And so if we have already died and if we've already been raised spiritually, what is there to fear? What is there to fear? So do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Second, stand firm. Yes, we face an army. We face an army that is always trying to encircle us. Is always trying to push your back up against the wall. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, verse 12. We face an army of temptations of, of this world. We face the flesh and the evil. We are tempted to, to fail. We are tempted to give in. We're tempted to go back into slavery. All the things that we just learned, we just said. But we are to stand firm. Galatians 5.1, one of my favorite verses. For Christ, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit then to a yoke of slavery. But brothers and sisters, we are called to stand firm because you have been set free. Stand firm in the truth, not in your own strength. Your own strength will lead you to fear. But in the strength of Christ, in the strength of the gospel, in the finished work of Christ. But then third, he says, we are to be still. 
Oh, how counterintuitive that is. We have reactions, right, to things that come our way. When things are coming at us, we, we react. We want to move. We want to dodge. We want to run. We want to flight or we want to fight. But the Word of God is telling us that with your backs against the wall, what is he saying? I will fight for you. Be still. Be quiet. Look and listen and watch what the Lord does. It's interesting to me. It's interesting to me just how basic this is right here. This is so basic. This is what I, I do and Christina does, does and any parent ever does with little children about a gajillion times a day. You are teaching them to just be still and to listen. You're teaching them to be still and to, 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 to listen with their, with their eyes and with their ears, watching with their eyes and their ears and their hearts. And the same thing for us adults. Listen, we are like them. When fear comes upon us, when we want to do something else, we are to be still and listen. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself on the one who prospers in his way over the man who desires evil devices. Be still. And as Charles Spurgeon once wrote, he said, I dare you to think it's a very interesting thing to stand still. But it is one of the postures of a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle seemed to hint at this difficulty when he says, stand fast, and having done all, still stand. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. The response for us is quite simple. Remembering the big picture of God's sovereignty over everything. The reality that when our backs are against the wall, that temptation to fear and to go back in slavery is very real. But by faith we make a stand. We make our stand not by fearing. Not by fearing what doesn't need to be feared. But by what? standing firm, and being still. But I would be remiss if I did not point to you once more, once again, before we end, to not point you to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who these three traits of being still, standing firm, and not fearing, that he is the author of our perfecter of our faith who exemplified these things in his life and also on the cross. We are going to struggle, and sometimes we may fail in these things. And you may even, be, you may even surprise yourself at the doubt that you may have sometimes. But we look to Christ. We look to him. Because that is where our faith is, and that is what we rely on solely. And as he has said, to those who are weary, to those who are, have their backs against the wall, he says, come to me, all who are laboring heavy laden, and I will give you rest.
And all of God's people said,